So my family uses this little mechanic, auto mechanic in Emmaus. It's this one bay auto shop with two guys, Cam and Jimmy, these really cool guys. And what's great about this one bay auto shop is like when I bring my car in there, I get to go right into the auto bay with them and I get to touch or see all their tools. And I'm like super tactile, so I want to touch, open up the drawers, look at things, check it out. And they have a ton of tools. These guys have a ton of tools, this big chest of drawers full of tools, and they have tools stored all over the whole garage. And they have a tool for everything they need to get done. And they always have more tools coming. So I was there one time, and they have this big truck that's there selling them more tools. And I'm like, guys, you have to have enough tools by now. You really need more. And they're like, you can always need more tools, right? That's the way men think. But in every way, in every circumstance, having the right tool makes a huge difference, right? And so when you think of um, just different assignments in this world, when you think of a dentist, for instance, you want your dentist to have the right tools, don't you? Like, you don't want your auto mechanic tools to be used in your mouth. That's not cool, right? You want your school teacher to have the right tools. They want the right education and the right tools to teach your kids. You want your plumber to have the right education and the right tools, because it changes how the assignment is done. And I think of salespeople. Salespeople have to use the right tools to not make us feel like they're selling us something, right? So depending on what they're trying to get you to buy, they want you to feel comfortable and excited about what you're purchasing. The right tool makes all the difference in whatever assignment you have. And we've been talking over the last number of weeks about how sons and daughters of God, followers of Jesus, have a kingdom assignment. All of us have a role and responsibility in this world. And we're learning about our kingdom assignment by looking at the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. His assignment helps us to see our assignment. When we look at his life, we can grow in understanding our assignment placed in this world, though his assignment is really different. It's unlike anything that you and I would ever have. Paul's assignment was to take the gospel of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago around the Roman Empire. And he was uniquely gifted with the right tools for that to happen. I mean, this guy Paul is a brain on a stick. I mean, he is so smart. He goes to the Harvard of his time for religion. He's incredibly passionate, incredibly gifted as a speaker. And he's traveling around town to town telling people about Jesus. In some ways, he's kind of like a traveling salesman telling people about Jesus. And he wants people to know about Jesus so they can put their trust in Jesus and the kingdom of God can expand. That's his assignment. And like any person, having the right tools for Paul to do that makes a difference. Because if you're going to sell insurance, right? Some of you are insurance salespeople. When you're going to sell insurance, if you're going to sell insurance in Nashville or Briningsville, your technique is going to be different. Because the people in Nashville, Hicks, they're gonna be really different than the people in Bridingsville, a different kind of Hick, right? So you're gonna change the techniques if you're selling insurance based on the individual crowd of people that you're talking to. And Paul is going to do that, and we can learn about his technique and his kingdom assignment and then look at our techniques and assignments of how we can fulfill our purpose. So turn in your Bibles, turn them on, open them up to Acts chapter 19. Acts is in the New Testament, sort of 
towards the right in your Bible. Turn them on, open them up. Love for you to follow along, class, and don't fall asleep. That's why we gave you coffee. <laughs> so, so Paul, his assignment is to tell people about Jesus, and one of the things he does is he goes into a city, into a town, and he tries to learn about that town so that he knows what technique to use to tell people about Jesus. He comes into this town of Ephesus, and Ephesus is a city that's known for a lot of different things, but one of the things that this city is known for is they believe in magic. They're all about the supernatural, and they'll take whatever God and whatever religion and whatever belief and mix it all together in whatever kind of magical concoction to be able to pray to God and hope that the supernatural takes place inside of them. Super magical, super supernatural people. Paul sees that, and he's going to adjust his technique in order to share the love of Jesus with these people, he's going to use some supernatural things. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way was just their way of calling people Christians. They publicly maligned the Christians. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. They're in this lecture hall for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Okay, he's going from town to town doing his kingdom assignment. He stops at the synagogue where Jewish people meet to worship. He tells them that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. They go, you're a quack, and they say, get out. And Paul goes next door to this lecture hall where he starts to talk about Jesus, and he spends two years in this lecture hall telling people about Jesus to the point where verse 10 says, everyone in that province heard about Jesus. Wow. Everybody? Well, to understand this, we've got we to realize that, that Paul's not making his living preaching about Jesus. That's not how he makes his living. Preaching about Jesus is kind of like his side hustle. What he does in the day is he's a tent maker. He makes tents. He's a blue-collar guy who works with his hands, and he preaches, so to speak, on the side. So some people would say his daily schedule looked like this. This is important. His daily schedule would be get up in the morning and he'd work, say, making tents from 7 to 11 o'clock when their culture would take like a long lunch break, like a siesta. They would pause from 11 to, say, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, chill out for a little bit, then return to work 3, 4 o'clock and work till 8 or 9. They had this in their culture, siesta, break. Paul would get up, he'd work, make tents. Then during that siesta break, he'd go into the marketplace, into the lecture hall, and tell people about Jesus. Then he would finish that and go back to work making tents. And so you think about this, over two years, he spends two, three, four hours a day, six days a week for two years telling people about Jesus. And he's super gifted, super smart, super pers per persuasive, 
So people around town are going, hey, at your lunch break, you probably should wander over there and listen to that dude, Paul. He's talking about some stuff that's pretty interesting. So in a period of two years, people are heading to Taco Bell. On their way to Taco Bell, they stop at this lecture hall, they hang out, they listen for a little bit, they make the decision, do I like what I hear? This is curious, I wanna hear more. Or they go, this guy's a quack, and they leave. But over a two-year period, kind of everybody in the region has been through and they know what Paul's talking about in this lecture hall. And remember, this isn't how he makes his money. He's not like, oh, I'm going to tell you this and I'm going to bamboozle you to believe in Jesus so I can make money. No, he's got money. He's making tents. He's doing this because he loves Jesus and Jesus has changed him. And he's like, I got to tell you about my Jesus. And watch what happens next. Remember the city loves their magic. So while Paul is working, making tents and teaching people about Jesus, verse 11 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left him. His handkerchiefs and aprons healed people? Like, what's up with this? Remember, he's a working man, blue-collar guy who goes to work every day making tents. He's sweating. He's using handkerchiefs to wipe his brow. He's got an apron on to make sure he doesn't get dirty. He does that in the morning. Then he goes to preach, takes off his work clothes, leaves them there on the side. He's talking, he's preaching, he's telling people about Jesus. He gets his work, his apron clothes, his sweat rag, he grabs that back, he goes back to work. And he does this every day. And at some point, somebody goes, hey, look, at there's his work clothes. And they pick up his work, work clothes, and suddenly his work clothes have this miraculous ability to heal people. Why? Paul is talking about the power of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. He's teaching this message that's supernatural in a culture that's filled with supernatural expressions. And God, in his sovereignty, gave Paul the tools necessary to authenticate his message so that Paul could speak these things and people would go, wow, this guy Paul, his apron, his handkerchief, heals people. What's up with this guy? His God is different. His God is powerful. And people would come to know Jesus. God gave Paul the right tools to use in the right place to get the message out that the kingdom of God was near. This next scene is kind of crazy. Verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, evil spirit, to get out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered, hey, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Track. Paul's doing all this incredible stuff in a town that's all about magic. And people are looking at Paul and going, man, this guy's drawing a crowd with his aprons and handkerchief. Let's try it. Let's see if we can try this stuff too. And they don't believe in Jesus, but they start masquerading. They start the facade of religion. And they use these magical incantations hoping they can get something done until a spirit beats the tar out of them. They're frauds. You see, miracles were happening to authenticate the message of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom of God. 
and messing with that, frauds, gets their butts kicked on the way out of town. And all of this is done publicly, which is why in verse 17 it says, when this became known, when all of this became known, that Paul was here and he's telling people about the kingdom of God, that his stuff is able to produce miracles and he's doing powerful things in the name of Jesus. Some people are frauds, get their butts kicked. When all this is made known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. This is kind of scary. This is weird. This is different. And it says the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So track this. There's one God in the universe, and he sent his only son into the world, and Jesus bumped into this guy, Paul, and changed Paul's life forever, and said, Paul, I have an assignment for you. I want you to tell everyone else about me, and Paul comes into this town that's all about magic, and he starts telling other people about this, and people are trying to bamboozle using their own magical incantations. It doesn't work, but there are some who put their trust in Jesus. And they begin to fear, hold in high honor Jesus' name. You see, there are people that recognize there was one true God as they listened to Paul's message, as they embraced Christ. It began to change them. And so they honored Jesus. They loved Jesus. They believed in Jesus. And because they held Jesus in high honor, look what happens in verse 18. Many of those who believed in Jesus now came, and they openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma being like a day's wages. Lots of money. So Paul is talking about Jesus. People are hearing this message. Some people are dismissing him as a quack. Others are hearing this message and going, wow, this Jesus is powerful. And they're starting to believe in this Jesus and embracing Jesus. And Jesus is entering the hearts of people. And the hearts of people are being changed. And they're holding Jesus in high honor because this powerful Christ is changing their lives. And what do they do? They begin to confess their sin. They begin to confess the ways they used to live. They were sorcerers. They were magicians. It's almost like When he says they burned their scrolls, they had a bunch of magic wands using to do all kinds of incantations, and they're going, wait, Jesus is of so much more value, so much better, we're going to burn those old magic wands because we so believe in Jesus. He's of so much more value, he is so much more powerful, we hold him in high honor. We confess our sins and we burn our old lifestyle of sorcery and magic wands and we follow Jesus exclusively. Did you know today you're in a church? No, right here, right now. You're watching online, this is church. You're in this room, this is church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And along with churches around the Lehigh Valley and around the world, we're here gathered to worship Jesus. If you're a son or daughter of God, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're here to worship Jesus. Some of you are just here to explore and you're just trying to check in Jesus out and I'm glad you're here. But for sons and daughters, those who have put their trust in Jesus, I have a question for you. Do you hold Jesus in high honor? Do you hold Jesus in high honor? And if you do, how would anyone know? 
If you hold Jesus in high honor, how would the people around you know that you hold him in high honor? Well, maybe by what we say, maybe by what we sing, maybe because we're here in the church of Jesus Christ. But there are lots of people that say the name of Jesus. There are lots of people that go to church. There are lots of people that sing songs about Jesus. They put bumper stickers on their car that say they love Jesus. Lots of people say they love Jesus. What's the difference between someone who says they love Jesus and someone who holds Jesus at high honor? And if you held Jesus at high honor, how would people know? Not no honor, not low honor, not medium honor, high honor. What would that look like? What would that mean? You know someone values Jesus by what they give up to follow him. You know if someone holds Jesus in high honor by what they give up to follow him. Can you imagine if the Bible said, you know, many who believed in Jesus openly confessed, we like Jesus and our magic wands too. And we're going to hold on to Jesus and hold on to our sorcery. And we're going to do both of them at the same time because we don't really like giving up our magic wands. They're too expensive and we kind of like doing both. We're going to mix Jesus and our magic wands together. That's what we're going to do. That's our religion. Can you imagine if that's what the Bible said? The Bible says they held Jesus in high honor, I believe in you, Jesus, and they burned their magic wands. Burned. You see, we don't like the fact that Jesus wants to be and deserves to be in the highest place of honor in our lives. Not low honor, not medium, high. High honor. But we like to add Jesus to things. We want to add Jesus to our addictions. We, we like to add Jesus to our control issues. We like to add Jesus to our anger. We like to add Jesus to our sinful lifestyle. We like to add Jesus to our career pursuits. We want Jesus to forgive us. We want Jesus to love us. We want him to be merciful to us. We also want to hold on to all the things that we feel like holding on to, and we want him to keep forgiving us and keep loving us, but we want to continue to do exactly how we behave, the way we want to behave, the how, all that stuff. We want to do it all at the same time. We want the goodness of Jesus at the lowest possible cost. Bargain shoppers for religion, you and me. Whatever the cheapest easiest way to get the most bang for my buck with you, Jesus, that's what I'm going to do. I don't want it to cost me anything. I'm not going to let go of nothing to follow you. But these guys who practiced their magic realized that Jesus was at such a higher value that they said, be gone with my old stuff and my magic wands, and they burned them. How much does Jesus cost you to follow? Not, not money. You, you can't buy Jesus. You can't buy forgiveness. You can't buy a relationship with God. But how much does it cost you to follow him? I mean, is Jesus more valuable to you than? Fill in the blank. Is, is Jesus more valuable to you than your health? talking to sons and daughters of God in here that have said, I believe you, Jesus. Is Jesus more valuable to you than your health? Is Jesus more valuable to you than your relationships? Is he more valuable to you than your career? 
Is he more valuable to you than your money? Is he more valuable to you than your sexuality? Is he more valuable to you than your preferences or your opinions? Is he more valuable to you than your politics? Is Jesus more valuable to you than your thoughts about gun control? Is Jesus more valuable to you than your thoughts about health care? Is Jesus more valuable than your pride or your reputation? Is Jesus more valuable to you than anything else? My answer to that, Joe from Emmaus, is no. Jesus is not more valuable. I hold Jesus at low to medium value, not high value. I want him to be high in my value. But most days, he's low in my value. I want him to grow and be of highest value. But I live for my comfort and my pleasure and my reputation, my politics. But you know that someone holds Jesus in high value by what they give up to follow him. And if it costs you nothing to follow him, if you mix Jesus in with every other hobby and concoction and religion that you follow, then he is not your Lord, he's your hobby. He's not your God, he's your lifestyle. If he becomes of greater value and grows, and instead of being low and middle, he becomes the top priority. What, was that, what would that look like? I want you to see the results of this in verse 20, Acts 19 verse 20. These Christ followers are burning their old lifestyle and following Jesus. And it says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Check this. Because they burned their past lifestyle and said Jesus is of highest value, people came to know Christ. And the kingdom of God spread. We all have kingdom assignments, each one of us. Some role in this world that God wants us to play. And sometimes we overlook this very basic thing for every son or daughter of the king, that sacrifice is a tool that God will use to advance his kingdom. That when I say, I so believe in you, Jesus, that I will let go of my lifestyle, what does that say to the people around me? I so believe, Jesus, that you are of highest value, that I'll put aside my opinions and my politics and my perspective, those things will be second and third in my value system because you will be the highest. Then instead of seeing my house and my family as mine, imagine how many of us, if we would open our houses and homes to foster kids who have no place to live, if we would open our homes to them and people in the valley would see the sacrifice of the family of God to provide a forever home to every child, that sacrifice would show people Jesus is alive and he's real and he changes people. Your kingdom assignment includes a cost. It includes a level of sacrifice. It's going to be different for all of us. It includes a cost and a sacrifice that says, I will let go of that. I will let go of that and I will trust you because you are of greater value than everything I know. And that is really hard. And I wish I could sit up here and tell you that I've got it. Jesus is of highest value. Nope. Jesus is of medium value to me, and I want it to grow. So how? How does it happen? Jesus becomes highly valuable to those who choose to obey him. I mean, this is just basic Christianity. Those who choose to obey Jesus, he grows in value. 
and we don't like this order. I, I want Jesus. Here's my, you know, if I'm king for the day, I'm saying, all right, Jesus, show yourself really valuable to me. Like, wave your magic wand over my kids and my family and my circumstances and my sexuality. Do kinds of things for me, and when you do them, then I'll follow you and obey you. But that's not the order. This is a kingdom of faith, which is, I will obey you, I will trust you, I will follow you, and when I trust you, and when I obey you, and when I follow you, follow you then I will discover you to be highest in value, which means I start taking him at his word, and I open up the Bible, and I see he commands me to live a certain kind of way, and I obey what he says, not based on what I feel, not based on what I like, not based on what I want and what everyone else is doing. I'm going to follow you because you're the king. And I start confessing my sin to him and to others and asking him to help kill my sin so that I might follow him. I start prioritizing his kingdom over my kingdom. Man, I wake up every day going, Joe's kingdom rocks. And he, this king, gets to rule and reign over every part of my life. And God's saying, Joe, you're my son, and it's my kingdom. Let's reverse that. Will you prioritize the kingdom of Christ over the kingdom of Joe? And it's me asking him on a daily basis to help me with that. It's deciding that I'm going to go to church and I'm not going to miss, not because it's going to get me out of hell, but because it's going to help me have hope to keep following. It's deciding I'm not going to miss my small group because I need connection with other people in order to continue to grow. You see, if I ask God to make His kingdom my top priority, if I ask God to make His commands my greatest loyalty, then He will grow in value. It's not the other way around. Pray with me. You are the king of all things, and one day every knee will bow to you. We have a choice now to submit and surrender, to give you our sin and our shame, and you promise to forgive. We also have a choice as sons and daughters to choose to surrender to you and prioritize you over lesser things. God, our taste buds are addicted to comfort in this world. Our taste buds are addicted to material possessions, popularity, prestige, fame. Our taste buds are addicted to wanting to have power and control over other people. And you are calling us to a new affection, a new taste, to trust that you're the king and your ways are good in all ways, faithful. And so change us from the inside. Change us and give us an appetite for you that we might prioritize your kingdom over our kingdoms. Prioritize your commands over our feelings. Prioritize walking by faith and not by sight. Prioritize seeing other people as children, children of the living God that need hope that we might sacrifice so that others could see the hope of Christ. Change us, please. We need you to do this in us. We cannot do it alone, but with you we can be changed. Help us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.